Brothers, good morning. Welcome back to the Tuesday Morning Men's Bible Study. We're so glad you could join us today. I hope you had a good spring break last week. And if you don't have spring break in the season of your life, I'm going to stop talking about it. Uh, I do want to let you know that next week we will be off again because it's Holy Week, the week that we celebrate our Lord's passion, uh, his, his coming into Jerusalem to die for our sins, and at the end of the week, rise again from the dead. And so what we'd encourage you to do next week, if you can, is sync up with our schedule. We'll be worshiping Sunday morning at 9 and 11. We'll have services Monday through Friday next week at noon here in the sanctuary. We'll have two services on Thursday night, Monday, Thursday service, uh, and obviously Easter morning, uh, celebrating the resurrection at 8, 9.30, and 11. And so we would love for you to join us next week, and then we'll be back for the Tuesday morning men's study in a couple weeks. So looking forward to that, and as we turn our attention to God's word this morning, let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you've awakened us this morning. We pray that you would spiritually awaken us too, that you would help us to see this morning who we really are in Christ Lord, help us to see the massive debt that we had that you have forgiven and what that means for our other relationships. Lord, would you bless our time as we turn our attention to your word? Would you teach us your word and draw us closer to you? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, brothers, as we get started, we're, we're talking to this week about the parable of the unforgiving servant. And as we dive in, I want you just to imagine a scenario where you're visiting a foreign country and you're just there kind of minding your own business. You're not doing anything wrong, but you end up being captured and imprisoned. You're a hostage and, and your captors abuse you, you know, physically, mentally, emotionally. And, and they don't treat you like a human being with dignity and worth. And, and they do things that, you know, you don't want to remember, but you can't forget what happens there in this situation. So finally, after years of torture, you're released. You're free. And days after your release, a reporter asks you, you know, do you have any words for your captors? What would you say? What would be going on in your heart? What would you feel? Would you be nursing bitterness and anger and the desire to get revenge? Or would there be something in you that might move towards forgiveness? And the bigger question really is, why would you respond one way or another? If we can get ourselves inside that kind of scenario, it reveals something about us. That we have this natural sense that there should be a certain limit to forgiveness. Forgiveness should only go so far. You know, we should try to forgive up to a point. But after a while, forgiveness should be off the table. But then we keep finding ourselves in situations that really demand more forgiveness than we can muster. So the question is, will we be bound and defined by this limited forgiveness? Or is there a bigger story that reframes everything, especially when it comes to people sinning against us? That's really what our passage is about this week. Before we get to Matthew 18, 21 through 35, I want to try to give us some context so we understand where this story fits in the flow of the narrative. So we'll read our text really as we go this morning. So let's start with the first few verses of the passage and then we'll jump back and then start to move forward. So in Matthew 18, 21 through 22, Peter comes up to Jesus. It says that then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him as many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. 
So we need to understand where did this come from? Why is Peter asking this question? And to understand that, we need to understand our context, our setting. The Gospel of Matthew is framed around five lengthy sermons from Jesus. Now Moses gave us the first five books of the Old Testament called the Torah, and Jesus comes, Matthew sort of frames him as the true and greater Moses who comes to fulfill the law. And so Jesus gives us his kingdom vision in Matthew in the form of five discourses. And Matthew 18 comes in as the fourth discourse. And it's unique because it's really focused on life in the church, how our life together works. And Jesus expects us to be this countercultural community through which he expands his kingdom. And that means as kingdom citizens, we should reflect the character of our king. Now, the problem is we're perpetually tempted to understand the kingdom in worldly terms. And so Jesus is always saying things that seem to turn us inside out and upside down. And Matthew 18 starts with one of those. In in Matthew 18, starting in verse 1, it says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So we would define greatness by things like power and possessions and prestige. So Jesus takes children who weren't valued then like they were now, and he says, we have to humble ourselves and become like a child if we want to be great in this kingdom. So does our vision of kingdom greatness include the foundation of faith like a child? And then Jesus goes on to say some things about not leading uh, people to sin. He goes on to say some things about seeking the lost. And in in verse 15, there's, there's a familiar passage for some of us where Jesus is talking about what happens when our relationships break down. So here's really the immediate context of our parable this morning. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Now these six verses would you know, deserve their own series, but let me just highlight a few things. Jesus expects Christians to sin against one another. And he expects us to respond in a certain way when this happens. In the world, when there's an offense, you know, people go and tell everyone else. And they share the offense and they smear the offender's reputation. And they either retreat from that relationship or they try to get revenge. And the current trend that we call cancel culture is a perfect picture of this because in cancel culture we say, offend us in any way and we'll cancel you. But in the church, Jesus expects us to start by going to that person alone, by going in a spirit of humility and love and seeking reconciliation and restoration. 
Now that doesn't always happen, obviously. People don't always want to repent or desire restoration, but Jesus is telling us how we're supposed to live as God's people, no matter how people respond. And he promises to be with us as we do this difficult work of relationships together. So that's the context of our passage today. In the church, we're going to sin, we're going to be sinned against, and the Lord expects us to respond to this reality differently than people in the world. So when our relationships are strained by sin, the Lord wants us to respond in a way that demonstrates his character and that shows the power of the gospel. But that obviously leaves us with a lot of questions, like, what if it doesn't work? You know, what if I sin against you and you come to me and I don't respond well? Are you still supposed to forgive me? And on the other side, what if it does work? What if you sin against me and I come to you and you do respond well? Am I just supposed to forgive and forget and act like nothing ever happened? There's a lot of questions here. So aren't you grateful for Peter? We, we tend to give Peter a hard time, but Peter is helping us because he says what we would say if we opened our mouths and he asks what we would ask if we would just not be afraid to ask it. And so Peter says... Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. And you see, this is vintage Peter because he's trying so hard. He really wants to make Jesus proud. So he takes what the rabbis of his time were teaching, that you should forgive someone three times, and he doubles it. And he adds one for good measure. So he really thinks he's being generous. You know, Jesus, how many times? I know some wise guys are saying three times. Well, how about three times two plus one? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. So we've talked about the setting in Matthew's gospel and in Matthew 18, but the most important setting is our default setting as human beings, because our default setting is to assume that there's a natural limit to forgiveness. It's reflected in sayings we have like, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Left to myself, I can forgive you two or three times. Peter thinks he can forgive you maybe up to seven times, but 77 times. And we're all going to explode before we get to 77 times, unless something really radical has happened inside of us. So what Jesus does is he tells a story to motivate that kind of radical forgiveness that characterizes life in the kingdom of God. So here is that parable in Matthew 18. Follow along, starting in verse 23. It says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him... The master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. 
Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So as we study this parable, note that Jesus actually gives us an interpretive key. He says at the end, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. That's the final word and an interpretive key. The parable is a warning for us who struggle to forgive. And Jesus also right here helps us understand the meaning of the characters in the story. So what we see is that the king represents God the Father. And the unforgiving servant, as hard as it is to say, basically represents us. Jesus wants to see ourselves in the unforgiving servant. So we have this financial story that's really pointing to a deeper spiritual reality. We have a story about these monetary debts, but the bigger story is about the spiritual debt we owe to God. And Jesus exaggerates several points of the story to make his point clear. So it's also helpful to understand some ancient Near Eastern currency. So a denarius would be one day's wage. Now in the story, we see a hundred denarii. That's a hundred days wages, or maybe about four months of salary for an average worker. A talent is 6,000 denarii, which if you do the math, works out to about 20 years of pay. But in the story, the big debt that's owed to the king is 10,000 talents, 60 million denarii, or 200,000 years worth of pay. In our terms, it would be like owing someone billions of dollars. A Jewish historian named Josephus estimated the annual tax yield of Palestine was 8,000 talents, and that included Judea, Samaria, Galilee, and more. So the servant in this parable owes the king more than the annual tax revenue of the whole region. Jesus <laughs> wants us to see this is an overwhelming debt. So in summary, the servant owes the king a staggering debt. The king forgives the debt, as shocking as that is. And then the same servant refuses to give a, forgive a smaller debt owed to him. And the king's anger is rightly aroused. So the message is clear as you read the parable. If we claim to know the God who forgives our massive debt to him, and then we can't forgive our brother or sister's relatively small debt to us, we may not really know God's forgiveness at all. And like the servant in the parable, we should fear his righteous judgment. So let's dive deeper into the parable and see how it points us to Christ. I want to start by focusing on the king and his servant. We'll call it part one because this is their first meeting. And, you know, it's, in, it's important to know that in a parable, every detail is not as important as every other one. So Jesus doesn't tell us how the servant came to owe the king 10,000 talents. The important thing is the debt was 10,000 talents and he could not repay it. So when he learns that he and his family and his possessions will be sold, he does what any of us would do. He goes to the king and he begs the king for mercy. And his words are understandable, but they're also ridiculous. Because think about the size of the debt. And he says, be patient with me. Give me a little more time and I will pay you everything. 10,000 talents? So that seems ridiculous. But the king's response is even more ridiculous. And he falls on his knees, he begs, he says that. But then the king, out of pity for him, 
the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt out of pity. Not because of his merit, not because of his personality, not because of his work ethic. Out of pity, he released him. He set him free, and with a word, he forgave the debt. Now, this is just a story, and for a story, this is incredible. But when we think about what Jesus has actually done for us, it's even more incredible. Because think about the debt that we owe to God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The God who created us. The God who sustains us every moment of our life. The God who came to live and die and rise again. Think about his holiness, his justice, his faithfulness, his mercy, his grace, his glory, his love. What obedience and faithfulness and love do we owe to God? But in our sin, we've amassed a debt larger than we can count. Think about it. If we've sinned against the infinite, eternal God, how long would it take to repay that debt? Do we really want to hang our eternal security on cliches like, I just need to do more good things than bad things, or I just try to be a good person, or I just try to leave the world better than I found it? Brothers, our debt to God is so massive, we could never repay it. Trying to earn our salvation is more foolish than this servant thinking he could pay off 10,000 talents if he could just get a little more time. And yet what has our God done? He's taken pity on us. He's full of compassion toward us. For God so loved the world, the Father sent his Son. Jesus came to live in our place, to die in our place, to rise again, to conquer sin and death. He came to release us from the bondage of sin and to forgive our debt. And on the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. And the word he used was sometimes stamped on an agreement to, to, to basically say, paid in full. Jesus paid it all. Not because of our merit, not because of our personality, not because of our work ethic, out of pity, out of deep compassion, out of infinite love. And just consider the cost for a minute. The king in the story forgives the servant 10,000 talents with a word. He washed it away. But what happened? The king had to absorb that financial loss into himself. Jesus forgave the 10,000 talents of our sin, we could say, not with a word, but with his own life. He was nailed to a cross and he bled and he died. He didn't wash away our sin with a word, but with his own precious blood. And he absorbed that great loss into himself so that we might enjoy the greater gain of his fellowship forever. Do you know this scandalous, unlimited forgiveness of God and Christ? Do you have the joy that comes from knowing that your debt is paid forever? I don't know if anyone has said it better than David in Psalm 103. Listen to these verses. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. 
That is the way the Lord responds to our debt. And that is the offer to anyone who would come to Christ, even this morning. For those of us who know him, just think about this. If we know the Lord, if we know how he's responded to our debt, what difference should that make in our lives? Surely, if we've been forgiven 10,000 talents, we would never be the same, right? Well, you read on in the story. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I'll pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Now, if possible, this second scene, the servant with his servant, is more shocking than the first. Jesus tells us the servant walks out of the king's presence, finds one of his fellow servants who owes him a hundred denarii. Remember, he was just forgiven 60 million denarii. He should be a new man, you know, like Ebenezer Scrooge on Christmas morning. But what does he do? He seizes this poor guy, chokes him and says, pay what you owe. So the servant pleads with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. These words should have awakened him because he was just on his knees basically saying the same thing to the king. But he can't see it and he can't hear it. He was forgiven billions and he can't forgive thousands. The king's forgiveness was stunning. And the servant's lack of transformation when he experiences that forgiveness is equally stunning. Question is, how could anyone experience that and respond like this, because he didn't get what he deserved. He received mercy, and then he turns around and demands what he deserves. He shows no mercy. So when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And this makes sense. The witnesses see this massive disconnect, and they're greatly distressed. They hurry to go and tell their master about the unforgiving servant. So are we greatly distressed when we see someone who claims to know forgiveness but refuses to show forgiveness? And perhaps more of a personal question, am I greatly distressed if I am that person? If I'm someone who walks around claiming to have the forgiveness of Christ and yet I can't forgive someone who has wronged me. So that brings us to the king and his servant part two. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now note what the master says. Based on the man's response to his forgiveness, he calls him a wicked servant. To receive such forgiveness and not be changed by it reveals that we have a wicked, calloused, hard heart. So the master reminds him that he forgave him all that debt. In the story, there are no conditions for his forgiveness. But it's obvious when you look at this that no conditions doesn't mean no consequences. The king expected this unconditional forgiveness to bring about a radical change. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Where's the disconnect? So I want to think as we conclude about some ways we might think through and apply this passage to our lives. So think about these things. Without God's help, we can't see clearly. We minimize our debt to God 
and we maximize other people's debt to us. We make ourselves a little sinner and we make our neighbors big sinners. Think about how you've done this, perhaps with a parent or a spouse or a friend or a coworker or a child. How have you made someone else's sin a bigger deal than your debt to God, your sin before God? And so we, we see ourselves at the center of everything. And so when someone wrongs us, we don't have the resources to respond as we should. We forget God doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. And then we fixate on getting what we think we deserve from others. Now, there's so much hatred and unforgiveness in the world. And part of what I'm talking about explains that. But, you know, if people don't know Christ, we can understand that. But when the hatred and forgiveness are actually in the church, the world looks at us and doesn't see Jesus. Today, if you're walking around, you might hear Christians say that they hate someone in the neighborhood or a celebrity or an athlete or a politician or another church or another theological perspective. But I can't think of one example in the gospels where Jesus hates a person or a group of people. I don't think there is one. Even when Jesus gets angry, his anger is motivated by his love for people and his desire that they would find life. So Jesus does talk about hatred, but what he says is the world, is, the world hates him. And if we follow Jesus, the world will hate us too. But he doesn't call us to hate people. He calls us to love even our enemies. And that's exactly what he did for us, even when we were his enemies. From the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. When we would be yelling, crucify him, crucify him, when we despised him and put him on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And in Matthew 18, we're not even talking about people on the outside. We're talking about our brothers and sisters in Christ. Friends, we are not enemies. We are family in God's household. And Charles Spurgeon says this, as soon as we become Christians, we cannot hate anybody. If we claim to know him, his mercy, his forgiveness and love, and we can't forgive one another, we should be deeply distressed. Our unforgiveness suggests that we may have missed God's forgiveness. And if we've missed God's forgiveness, we have a lot bigger problem than just getting someone to pay us what we think they owe us. Now, no one is saying that forgiveness is easy. Some of us have endured terrible things at the hands of people close to us, even from people who claim to be Christians. But because of what Jesus has done for us, we have the resources in him to forgive others. If we are in Christ, we're connected to the fountain of mercy. He's paid our debt and restored us to fellowship with him. So when anyone wrongs us, we don't start with that person and what they've done. We have to start with the Lord and what we've done to him in our sin and what he has done for us in his grace. And over time, his unlimited forgiveness transforms our limited forgiveness. And we begin to look more like him. So we need wisdom to know how to respond when people wrong us. Sometimes a relationship can't continue. But even when restoration doesn't happen, forgiveness protects us from the poison of bitterness. And forgiveness protects the church from looking like the rest of the world. The world should see a church full of little miracles of forgiveness. 
We're called to forgive as we have been forgiven. That's the easiest way to summarize what we're talking about. We're called to demonstrate that the gospel works. So think about these questions. Do you know his forgiveness? Do you want other people to experience it too? Think about this. When people sin against us, it may be our best opportunity to preach the gospel. To overcome evil with good is to follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. Now that hostage scenario that I asked you to think about at the beginning as a hypothetical is actually not a hypothetical. There's a story of hostages, American hostages held in Lebanon from 1985 to 1991. And their captors were brutal. Their experience was miserable, but they were eventually released. And, and when they were released, a reporter did ask several of them, do you have a message for your captors? And one of the hostages who was actually outspoken about not being a Christian, he responded with hatred and said yes to the captors. I hope you die a slow and painful death. Unforgiveness, right? But another hostage named Terry Anderson, a Christian, said this. He said, I don't hate anyone. I'm a Christian. I'm required to forgive, no matter how hard it may be. Now, brothers, that kind of forgiveness doesn't happen overnight. And we can be sure that Terry had a lot of days and nights filled with anger and rage and confusion. But in the end, he saw this impossible task of forgiveness as he should through the finished work of Jesus Christ. If the Lord paid all of Terry's debt, and showered him with mercy, then Terry must show mercy, even to his captors. And if Jesus paid all our debt and showered us with mercy, then we must show mercy and forgive those who sin against us. And so I close with this exhortation from Paul from Ephesians 4. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Let's pray together. Father, this is a hard word for us to hear, Lord, but we want you to help us to see. And so open our eyes, help us to see ourselves truly, to see the debt that we owe to you, that Jesus came to pay in full, and help us to believe that that is an offer to us to receive full unlimited forgiveness. And Lord, we pray that we would this morning, whether it's for the first time or to be reminded of it again, Lord, that we would rest in knowing that we are forgiven and we stand under your grace. And Lord, I pray as we think about all the relationships around us, the the ways that we've been wronged, the ways that we have sinned against others, that your forgiveness to us would shape the way that we respond. And that as we move towards people in the days ahead, Lord, that, that it would be a demonstration of the power of the gospel and a light to the world to see uh, what it looks like as we love one another as the people of God. Thank you for these brothers. Bless their conversations now as they discuss these things. Lord, help us to see Jesus and help us to be transformed. In, In his name we pray. Amen.